0: Welcome to the ALN Podcast Series. Today's episode is brought to you by the Andrew James Advisory Group. AJAG provides training in the ISO 55,000 standard, and our world-class training qualifies students to take the ALN A55K Certification Exam, an industry recognition of an individual's knowledge of the standard. Certified individuals add value to any organization's asset management initiatives, Realizing your ISO 55,000 vision need not be painful. Visit us at www.andrewjamesadvisory.com to see how we can help.
1: Yes, hello and welcome. I am Nick Kanoki, and today we will be hearing from Keith Cunningham and Amelia Shakoy, both Assistant Director of Infrastructure with the U.S. Government Accountability Office, as well as Senior Analyst Colleen Taylor. Before we get underway, I just wanted to mention that you can find this and other podcasts, videos, papers, and more at assetleadership.net. And now, Mike Bordenaro, Director of Communications
2: for the ALN. I'd like to uh, welcome everybody to the launch of the Asset Leadership Network's 2021 National Issues webinar series. And we're so happy to have the U.S. Government Accountability Office uh, here to talk about their 2021 high-risk list. I'd like to start off by introducing uh, Keith Cunningham, who uh, uh, played a major uh, role in uh, guiding this uh, um, high risk list. And uh, let's start off by asking uh, Keith, uh, what is a high risk list?
3: (laughs) Uh, Hi, Mike. Thanks for uh, asking me to join you today. Um, uh, You know, I've met with you a lot of times. You know, we're the research arm of US Congress. And I always lead with saying we do 95% of our work at the request of Congress and i always wonder if people are curious what's the other five percent well (laughs) this is a big part of it um every two years the comptroller general takes it upon himself uh based on all the work we do uh to determine what are those federal efforts which are greatest risk for fraud waste abuse or mismanagement and he's been doing it for gosh almost two decades now and one of the Biggest issues that's been on for 18 years. It's not the longest standing, but it's getting close. Is federal property management, and uh, we divide it into four issues. Uh, it, it is traditionally been excess and underutilized property. My colleague Colleen will talk a little bit about that. Uh, hot, costly leasing, the need for reliable data to support decision making, and also physical uh, facility security. And I'm gonna. Should I just go on, Mike?
2: Yeah, um, I just want to clarify the Comptroller General is the top person at the GAL. Yes. Yes. He's the big boss,
3: a couple rungs above me. uh, And uh, does anybody know how how long he's appointed by the president? uh, I think it's a 12-year term. It's a ridiculously long term. And that's so he can be independent.
1: 15.
3: 15 years. Thank you. Uh, that's Amelia. They're being accountable to me, um, and uh, so that's how we are able to maintain our independence. Congress asks us to do work, but then they don't influence our work until we issue a final report. And uh, so, uh, for eighteen years, uh, high risk is, um, real property has been on the list. And I'm just going to share my screen real quickly to show you uh, how we manage that. Hmm. Ahead of myself there. Okay, so this is our star. Um, somebody, uh, for years, uh, people would ask us, how do you get off the high risk list, um, particularly people at GSA. And uh, it was kind of a secret. We usually said it was classified until we finally, a few years ago, came up with uh, the star idea. And as you can see, the star starts is just really just a kind of a circle. And as... The federal government starts to address the different issues leadership capacity action plan monitoring and demonstrating progress the star starts to fill out once the star is filled out the issue comes off the high risk list and this is our most recent star Uh, as you can see leadership commitment has been completely full Uh, we've seen ever since uh, the bush administration a real dedication to reforming real property and asset management um, and then for this year, action plan has finally been filled out. And that basically means that, aside from leadership, do you have a documented plan for reforming the area and, and uh, addressing the problems that we see in those four problems, excess unrealized leasing, data, and security? And security was kind of the last one to come around on that, and it finally did this year. And then still partial progress on capacity, monitoring and demonstrate progress. Uh, Now, Mike, um, I'm gonna ask you, do you want the good news for this year or the bad news first? Uh, Flip and uh, bad news. That's what I thought. Okay, so data. I'm gonna pop right to our neat graphic here. So the data to support decision-making has actually regressed a little bit. Um, we found that back in 2019, GSA had this grand plan for verifying and validating all the data that agencies gave to it. And it looked really great. And it looked like we might actually finally solve this problem and have reliable data to support decision-making. What we realized was GSA does not have enough power to do this all on their own. Uh, GSA's Office of Government-wide Policy relies on 50 federal entities who provide data to them to provide reliable data. So GSA's effort was not entirely successful. Uh, One of the big problems we found this year was the location data. Anybody who's going to use federal property data needs to have good location data. That's addresses, longitude, latitude. Without that, you really don't have much. And we found that 67%, hundreds of thousands of assets uh, didn't have reliable data on their location. And the problems were threefold. One is some of the the locations were just wrong. Uh, Some of the locations were incomplete and some of the data just was incorrectly formatted. Um, Goddard, which I'm sharing here, is a great example of the middle one which is incomplete data. So for every one of Goddard's 215 buildings, they had the same address, Greenbelt Road. That was it. And so we asked GSA, well, how does that show up in your mapping program? And they showed us. You can see here the main entrance is right here, um, about two miles from the center of Greenbelt Road, which is what GSA and actually Google both believe that address shows. So that's a real problem. And uh, another problem with showing all that at Greenbelt Road was you also have no idea that all of those 215 buildings are part of Goddard Space Flight Center because the public data doesn't have the name of the facility. So you just know that there are 215 government buildings somewhere
2: on Greenbelt Road. Uh, So that's- So So we- uh just, this is fascinating. And for there to be 60% uh, you know, inaccurate is incredible. We happen to know um, Bill Broat, uh, who's with uh, NASA. And he knows that the reason why something <laughs> was wrong was because they wanted to keep it top secret when they first listed it. And then once it got off the top secret, it hasn't been shifted over to reflect reality.
3: Right, unfortunately- NASA um, for so
2: long, he knows that that's like ancient history, but it still hasn't been updated.
3: Yeah, for all of these facilities, particularly with the, the idea of keeping this data secret, uh, we went to the Goddard web address. This is the NASA website for Goddard. And they very nicely have a, the addresses for all the buildings and a nice map of the facility on their public website. So that, I understand that it changed, but um, it's important to keep the data
2: updated. For Exactly. The- that's, yeah, that's the most important point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you ready for some good news? Yes. Uh, the good news
3: is uh, leasing. So we have been hammering for years, decades, uh, that the government leases when it makes more sense from a fiscal standpoint for them to own. And uh, the government has been trying to, GSA does most of leasing. It's the leasing agent for most of the federal government. And so even DOD and Department of Homeland Security and Interior, they often lease through GSA because they have uh, leasing authorities that expand from other agencies. And so GSA has been working at this, but, you know, because of budget scoring and access to capital, it's difficult. Uh, They had to freeze the footprint and reduce the footprint, and those helped. And uh, we're happy to say that with this year, uh, the stars have aligned, and we've removed costly leasing from the high-risk list. That doesn't mean that there's no problems left with leasing. There are lots. But in terms of our criteria, it just isn't one of the most serious problems the federal government has anymore.
2: And I'll show you some evidence. And while that uh, screen is loading up, I'd like to say that that defines what high risk is very well, Keith, how how something came off of it.
3: Okay, so here you go. And I, I'm not sure if my picture covers it up because I don't want to cover up the really good news at the end here. So, as you can see, uh, back when we the first line here is when we put uh, real property on the high risk list, leasing was increasing rapidly every year and then after we put on the high risk list the amount of square footage the gsa raised continued to increase as you can see the own portfolio pretty much stayed the same and then in 2007 for the first time ever the amount we leased actually passed the amount we own so the federal government was leasing more than it owned and it continued to get bad and around 2010 it peaked Uh, with the biggest differential. And then um, it started to, uh, GSA's policies and practices started to get things under control. And in 2015, you'll see that that's when they got serious with reduce the footprint. And later when uh, Dan Matthews came into the office in 2016, he was the PBS commissioner. He put the total focus on reducing leasing. And not surprisingly in 2019, Uh, it dipped down below ownership for the first time um, since 2007, 13 years. So uh, we thought that that was kind of, you know, one of the big signs that they should, that they should be able to get off the list. They've also saved hundreds of millions of dollars um, moving tenants from leased spaces into owned spaces. And, you know, the the poster child of all of our arguments was the Department of Transportation headquarters. It was the one cabinet level agency which was leased, not owned. And they had spent billions of dollars leasing that property. And now finally they've purchased it. So it is the last cabinet agency that was leased. All cabinet agency headquarters buildings are now owned. And we thought those three things, um, we pitched those to the, to the CG, our boss, and he agreed. And
2: but doesn't isn't there a value to continue reducing the lease space and increasing the ownership space? I mean, I know in some circumstances lease is going to be, but I would think that it would come off the list when it was down to only twenty five percent of owner or half of ownership. Not just
3: sure where that line is 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 really tricky. Um, as a matter of fact. I would say, and you'll hear from Colleen in a second, um, there are downsides to ownership as well. Um, I'm actually a proponent for office space. Uh, that leasing is a pretty good idea for the federal government. You can use the market's competition to get a good lease value. Uh, the upkeep of those buildings is baked into the lease rate. And when you're done with it, or if you want to change your footprint. Uh, you just wait to the end of your lease and you move somewhere else so you're w- with a, with an own facility when it when it's gone through its natural lifespan or when it's um, when you don't need all that space anymore you're left with kind of an empty building and those things can be really hard to dispose of okay and so that that's an added cost that I think that we don't really think about when we think about ownership I still think that courthouse isn't and specialized laboratories, those still need to be owned because there is no competition in the in the commercial real estate market. But if you can leverage
2: competition, I think that I think that it makes sense to lease in a lot of cases. And there's a question about uh, the agencies who eliminated the majority of their lease space. Is that something Colleen will address, or is that? Something- uh, no, uh, we haven't done a full
3: analysis of who these agencies are that um, that did the Yeoman's work, but I can say this, it is mostly DC, a national capital region area, which is doing the lion's share of the lease reductions. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think the leases are still continuing to increase um, in other regions, but uh, the national capital region had big reductions in this city. I think you'll see things like, um, people are actually moving on to St. Elizabeth's, uh, the DOT transportation headquarters building that was moved from, that was one big building which moved from leased to owned this year. And also the Department of State um, at, had a big building that it purchased right across the street from the Kent Center. I think it's Columbia Plaza. Uh, those are some of the big examples of moving from leases to
2: owned. And then Bob Leach is asking about uh, leased cost versus total cost of ownership and yeah. how to consider those. Is that Anything that you comment on, or or Colleen does?
3: Yeah, that that's 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 the big question, and you know we've we've never really done the math to find out where the line is, um, but we have done enough to know that the line is closer to leasing than ownership. From what we used to think, we used to think for any large stable um, property need that ownership was the best plan. Uh, but with our problems in maintaining those assets at an adequate, you know, an adequate condition, and our problems with disposing them when we don't need them anymore, uh, it shifted that line a little bit toward leasing. Um, we still believe the total cost of ownership, for the most part, for large stable things, favors ownership. But that line is not as bright as it used to be.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
3: And. Uh, The last issue that I haven't talked about before we move on to Colleen is physical security. Uh, I think everybody remembers uh, January 6th, uh, the attack on the Capitol. Uh, We're doing work on that uh, to figure out how the Capitol Police prepared for the attack. Uh, Other teams are doing it on what did the police do during the attack and and what was uh, the uh, social media's impact on that. Um, Our team is doing the preparation for the for the event, um, did they prepare adequately? Did they follow their risk assessment? Things like that. And um, besides that, we also have a long-standing recommendation that the, most of the buildings are are not like the National Capital. They're guarded by contract contractors, contract guards, and making sure contract guards have adequate adequate training to do the job that they're assigned to do is really that's a big lift. And Department of Homeland Security has been working for years to get their system up for making sure they have the right training. We're talking about active shooter training screen, you know, using magnetometer training, Um, make sure they have that training and then make sure the people who stand post actually have the training matches up. Uh, They finally got that system ready to roll out. But until it's actually rolled out and we we ensure that it's making progress, we can't take that off the high risk list. So so that is largely in a holding um, plan right now. And we'll check again in 2023. And with that, Colleen, I want you to tell us a little bit about um,
2: Excess and Unutilized. And then actually, Colleen, since you're new to the Asset Leadership Network, if you'll tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at uh, GAL.
4: Okay, thank you. And thank you, Keith, for setting the stage and providing that overview of high risk. And I also wanted to say thank you to Mike and ALN for having me this afternoon. So Wonderful. to provide a little background on myself. So I've actually been at JO for six years um, and I'm a senior analyst in JO's physical infrastructure team. Um, and I assisted Keith with this year's high risk list. Um, and right now I'm working on a mandate looking at uh, the new federal disposal process FASTA, which I will be getting into later into my presentation.
2: Excellent, welcome.
4: Thank you. Um, So I do have slides to present, but definitely feel free to jump in. It's easy for me to jump back and forth um, if anyone has any questions. So as you can see here, I have this uh, roadmap in front of me. And today I'm gonna be talking about some longstanding challenges that agencies face with managing excess and underutilized properties. So this is kind of the bad effect of ownership is that you have these properties that you no longer use. What do you do with them? And I'm also going to be providing an overview on the federal government's new disposal process, also known as FASTA, and then going over some findings we have on how FASTA's worked thus far. So as you can see here, like Keith said, uh, since federal property has been on GAO's high risk list, since 2003 federal agencies continue to face longstanding challenges. And so one of these challenges is the government's ability to effectively dispose of excess and underutilized properties. And this is really in part to the costly and lengthy federal disposal process. And so we found in our past reports that these are due to several reasons. So agencies have oftentimes said that it's difficult to de- Dispose of properties due to a lack of upfront funding to prepare these properties for disposal. Um, So, these funds generally come from an agency's overall budget and they oftentimes compete with other funding requirements, such as operation and maintenance. Um, So, agencies are put in a very hard position to choose. Do we wanna pay to continue to maintain the properties we have or do we wanna use our limited budget to prepare or clean up a property? Um, In addition, some other challenges are that agencies must meet certain statutory requirements. So these include historic preservation requirements and environmental remediation requirements. Um, In addition, surplus properties must be screened for possible public use. And this includes assistance to the homeless. Um, And so our previous reports, we found that these statutory requirements can add costs and also add time to disposals. And looping back in the data reliability piece, like Keith said, there are consistent reliability issues with real property data. And this really comes into play when agencies are using this data to identify underutilized properties. It's very difficult for them to look at FRPP and just rely on that data alone to figure out what properties to dispose of or not. And just the last thing to touch on are Some federal buildings are difficult to dispose of due to the location and type of building. A lot of these excise buildings are located in rural areas, and they're also located on federal campuses. So these buildings just don't have that private sector interest where someone's going to come in and want to buy these underutilized properties. And so that leads me into FASTA. So in 2016, the Federal Assets and Transfer Act, also known as FASTA, was enacted to expedite the federal disposal process. And in addition, it lays out several ways where they're hoping to reduce the cost of federal real estate. Um, And that touches on some of our other high-risk issues. is just maximizing utilization rates and then reducing the reliance on lease space. And so they do this in FASTA does this in three ways. First, FASTA established an independent board. Um, This is the Public Buildings Reform Board. And this is made up of experts in the public and private sector. And so this board is responsible for going through and identifying and recommending excess and underutilized property to dispose of across the federal government. And they do this through three rounds. And so the first round focuses on identifying at least five high value properties that have a combined fair market value of $500 to $750 million. And that is really what our first review is focusing on in FASTA. Next, I just wanted to point out some key differences between the traditional uh, disposal process and FASTA. So like I said, FASTA created a board, but it also centralized the process. And they really did this by giving different stakeholders uh, leadership roles and responsibilities. So for example, the board will come up with a list of recommendations, but it really is up to OMB to approve or disapprove these recommendations. In addition, GSA is the one responsible for executing these sales. Um, Some other differences are that FASTA establishes targeted timeframes. So like I said before, the disposal process can take a fairly large amount of time, but they're hoping to speed that up a little by requiring the board submit the recommendations by a certain date and that the GSA execute those recommendations within one to two years. Um, One thing I wanted to note is that FASTA itself is a temporary process. So it's actually only gonna last six years and the board will cease operations in 2025. So it really is a pilot program. And kind of tying back to some other challenges that I talked about, FASTA does exempt the high value round from some statutory requirements. For example, it's exempt from um, the public conveyance of considering buildings for homeless assistance. In addition, FASTA established a dedicated funding source and these funds are used to carry out the board's recommendation. Um, And as I said before, within FASTA, uh, GEO actually has two mandates and this one's focusing on the first mandate which is looking at how the board identified and recommended the first high value round.
2: Colleen? Yes. I'd like to take a second and uh, I, I think we just uh, made your screen bigger, but if uh, people who are viewing want to see your presentation larger, they can uh, click on uh, speaker view from the upper dot, the dots on the upper left of their uh, control bar screen. Okay, but great. I'm liking, you're our first Prezi presentation. In- and <laughs> so thank you.
4: Okay, yeah, this is a test trying to see if it works or not, but I'm glad that it's working so far. I don't think I can make it bigger on my end, but hopefully- No,
2: I think I think we just informed people how to make it bigger for themselves. And, and I like the Prezi, so, all right, sorry to interrupt.
4: Oh, no worries. Okay, so moving on. So the board was sworn in two years after FASTA was enacted, so in 2018, and the board worked with GSA, OMB, and selected federal agencies to identify potential high-value disposal candidates, and this is really where our review comes in. So we took a deep dive on uh, on this identification and evaluation process. And what we found is that stakeholders identified a total of 44 properties through three phases. And really how they did this was first, GSA reviewed agencies' submissions of recommendations for properties for disposal. So these are where the agencies came together, provided recommendations of properties they personally would like to dispose of through FASTA. Next, GSA hired a private sector contract to review the FRPP data to identify some additional candidates. And lastly, the board identified their own set of candidates and they did this by holding public hearings, conducting site visits, and then also meeting directly with agency officials. Um, So out of these 44 properties, the board ended up recommending 12 of them. And so these properties were from all across the country and they consisted of different types of things. There was excess land, there was office spaces. One of the properties was the um, VA Denver Medical Center. Um, So it's a wide range and variety and across the country. Um, So for example, one here is this is a Old data call center that the Department of Energy had in Idaho Falls, and at the time of the review, they actually had already removed or moved the operations to another building. So this building was just sitting there vacant, and the board came in and was like, "This is a good candidate." Um, And to follow up on that, so OMB actually accepted the board's list of 12 high value disposal candidates in January, 2020. And so this is where we came in, in the FASTA process. And we took a pause and said, okay, how's the process worked thus far? And this is really what we found. First, we found that the board's decision-making process actually wasn't very transparent. So like I was talking about before, the whole process of going from the 44 to the 12 wasn't really clear. And that's because the board didn't document their process, um, especially the rationales for why some candidates were selected over others. Um, Obviously, this is very important and a good practice in government to document but the fact that the board's recommendations have financial implications, including who gets funding or who doesn't, it's very important that these decisions are transparent. Um, And that's why we actually ended up making a recommendation to the board that they document their process moving forward. Um, Another uh, finding we had goes along the lines of those long-term challenges I talked about before and really, it's too early to tell. Fasta's effect on these long-standing challenges, um, and that's because the properties haven't sold yet. And you know, so and we started our second review, and that's really when we'll see. Hopefully, this process finish for this first round. Um, agencies did tell us that Fasta was good for them in the sense that it helped them push disposals forward. So a majority of the 12 disposal properties were actually properties agencies already wanted to get rid of. They were already on agencies' mind and FASTA came along and provided that mechanism. So it was good in that sense, but in regards to some of the other challenges, we just can't tell yet, especially funding. And one thing that's kind of interesting with the funding is that the sales proceeds which I said are 500 to $750 million for this first round will fund future rounds. But the issue is those properties haven't sold yet. So really the funding for the future rounds remain unclear. Um, And one spoiler alert is that the next round of recommendations are due December, 2021. Um, So it's definitely coming up pretty fast. And if they don't have that piece of information on what they're gonna be able to fund and cover, it it becomes a little difficult. Um, So for my last slide, I just wanted to set things up where we are now. So for the future and next steps, like I said, GSA still needs to execute the sale of these high value properties. Um, One thing that's interesting is as of March, 2021, GSA and the board are attempting to sell these properties as a single portfolio sale. Um, And that means that they wanna sell these properties collectively rather than individually. And this is a little unique for the federal government. They haven't really done anything like this before. It's way more common in the private sector. Um, So this will be a relatively new initiative for the government. Um, In addition, GSA has contracted a private sector brokerage firm to assist with these efforts. Um, And like I said before, this next round of recommendations are due December 2021. And these recommendations may be worth up to $2.5 billion of sales proceeds for the government. Um, And that's where we're going to be stepping in. And we've already began our second review looking at all of this. So that is it for my presentation. I don't know if anyone has any questions.
2: Well, first of all, uh, comment. Wow, that's a lot. You have been busy. Yes. uh, You have done a very good job of distilling a complex set of information into something that is comprehensible in a short period of time. So thank you for that. And uh, uh, one question is, matthew cook in your opinion what will make fasta a success and when and how will we know and
4: i think we'll
2: be open to everybody but why don't you take a stab at it first
4: so i think we will know when FASTA is a success is when these properties sell um the other part of the question i lost it but
2: oh sorry uh, <laughs> um uh, what will make it a What'll well, make it a success is when they sell and when the answer is the same thing when they sell we will know when it's a success. Yeah,
4: yes. And one thing and this is, um, you know, the board is pushing to sell these properties within the next fiscal year. So we sh- we will see how things play out. Um, but we should know pretty soon.
3: Okay, what can Play in on that too. Mike, if I okay. could. Yes. You know, I think FAST is a, a you know, it's, it's largely a pilot. Pro- oh, I'm, am I? Yeah. It's actually a pilot project and it's a proof of concept and so far so good. You know, they did their search, they recommended some sites, some of the sites were the sites that were recommended them. some of the sites they found on their own. And, and if it were, goes forward, I don't want this just to be like, okay, we did FASTA the board sunset and now we're going to go back to the all the old challenges we've always had i'm hoping that once fast is done we'll be able to take the good parts and make them you know
2: permanent okay we've got a couple other questions here and i'm going to start with uh, mike imony is there an estimate of how large the civil agency excess property is as a percentage of total holdings uh, any comments that uh, DOD believes their excess is around 20% of their total holdings? Do you have any calculation like that for the civilian side?
4: So we do, and I don't know the number on the top of my head, but I know that we did report it in our high risk report. We did. Keith, yeah, we did. But that number is coming from FRPP. So they do know that based off the frpp data and like he said i mean that comes with another host of issues is that the most accurate count we don't know um in addition to frpp agencies also have their own asset management systems and we found that agencies usually rely on that more because they believe that has a more accurate count so we do believe agencies do have a good idea but again those data reliability questions come into account
3: Okay. Yeah, we we never we never promote that statistic on um, what the percentages of underutilized vacant because we know that that is the worst um, variable in the FRPP in terms of its reliability. Agencies traditionally do not report an, uh, any kind of asset is as underutilized until they're ready to actually get rid of it. Uh, so particularly in things like VA, where you have old hospitals, much of which are vacant or underutilized, um, we know that that's, a, it, that's value is largely understated.
2: Okay, so two, two other things. Um, one, uh, Amelia has uh, had a technical difficulty and she'll be signing in, so we get to have to sign in again. There she is, so that's taken care of. And then another will fast scale up to move the potentially huge number of candidates. So I guess from what you were saying, that scale up is reliant on the money that's generated from whatever is sold.
4: Yes, and one thing that's interesting, too, is OMB actually published standards and criteria on how these candidates would be evaluated in February in the Federal Register, and they do request that for the next round there are a hundred candidates um, and that these are properties that agencies have previously considered for disposal. So the pool of candidates is are definitely going to get bigger from the 12 to whatever it's going to be the next round. Um, the next round is going to be way more complicated. It's going to be larger. Another thing, too, is that they can look past disposal. So like I said before, some of the other goals of FAFSA were to increase utilization, um, reduce reliance on leasing. So they're looking for opportunities there. Um, And one other challenge I think for the next round is going to be these 12 properties from the first round, they were ready to go. They were empty and they were ready to to be disposed of. The next round is going to be more complicated because there are still people in those buildings. And one of the challenges is going to be, where do we move these people?
2: Okay, and then before we go on to Amelia, one last question um, from Jack Kelly about the data. How come, the, how come the FRPP can't get to the real data and be able to know what's going on instead of having agencies' data they know isn't accurate? Ah, <laughs> that, thank you, Jack, for asking the obvious question. So uh, I'll uh, let you all set that. So
3: the biggest problem with agency data that's reliable and FRPP data that's not reliable is the conversion of the data. Uh, The FRPP has 24 specific variables with specific definitions that it needs. And to the extent that agencies' data, their native databases, don't line up perfectly with that, you're going to have problems. Um, Some agencies actually have to hire a contractor to do nothing but take their data and convert it into the FRPP uh, format. Of course, that's always gonna come with glitches. The biggest one, of course, being utilization. Um, Some agencies don't, some agencies, well, if they, they use a percentage utilization, other agencies say, like GSA says, if it's unutilized but available for utilization, then it's utilized because anybody can move in there at any time. And so you get these different definitions, and the data might not be wrong in the traditional sense, but it's wrong based on the definition that FRPP applies.
2: All right, so let's move on to Amelia, and I'll let you make uh, your statement, but there's already questions kind of backlogged uh, for you, so we're set there.
1: All right, well, uh... Thank you, Colleen and Keith, It's it's a, you've already provided a lot of information, so I just wanted to make a, a tie-in to asset management overall, and it may be obvious to some, I don't know, of course we don't know who exactly are the attendees, but I'm guessing some of your regular participants and people who already know a lot about asset management, but clearly managing real property is is about managing assets all of our real property for the federal government is is assets every piece of real property is an asset and while the federal government does not have an asset management system overall or an asset management framework um, each element of the high risk that keith spoke about earlier is a part of asset management and also relates to the asset management framework that we developed a few years ago in our report um, that was issued in November of 2018, about two and a half years ago, and which is consistent with ISO, the ISO 55,000 series of standards. Um, Keith, I was wondering, are you able to pull up the, the star, the first um, slide with the star and the areas, progress capacity, man, monitoring action plan, Yes, that one. So I just wanted to quickly point out uh, that these areas, leadership, commitment, capacity, action plan, monitoring, demonstrated progress are all covered by the framework that we developed. And as many of you may know, we developed six key characteristics for uh, effective asset management framework. And those would relate to all of these areas. So for example, one of them was in terms of, um, well, one easy one is uh, capacity would relate to resources. And um, uh, for example, okay, let me give you an example. Data reliability is related to capacity. And Keith spoke about how our rating for data reliability actually declined. So for the data reliability uh, area, we looked at mon- was monitoring and demonstrated progress that need improvement. And both monitoring and demonstrated progress fall into our framework where one of our six key characteristics is evaluating and improving, which includes monitoring. And uh, demonstrating progress would also fall into evaluating, excuse me, yeah, evaluating improving. So that's just an example. Uh, the data reliability is also relates directly to another one of our key characteristics, which is maintaining quality data. Obviously, that's a direct relationship. So I just wanted to show that there are you know, uh, correlations, which there should be, between our framework and this star that we're using, which we were not thinking about an asset management framework when we developed it, but it just makes perfect sense that it should be related. Uh, Another area in terms of capacity in the facility security area, the areas that need to be improved are resources, as I said, and monitoring and capacity, which have to do with leadership support, which is resources under our framework, the asset management framework, leadership support has to do with providing enough resources, which here in the STAR we're calling capacity, but resources are Part of capacity. So we may not be using the same words, but it is it would translate to the same thing. So all of our six key characteristics are covered in this star and in the areas. Uh, the three areas that are still part of, that are not complete, the excess and underutilized property, the data reliability, and the facility security, uh, as I said, are all areas of um, Asset management, obviously, and each relates to different areas of the key characteristics, um, such as uh, the other one, maximizing an asset portfolio's value. Obviously, if you don't have a good security, you can't maximize the value of that of that asset, and if you. Uh, if you are not making good use of, if you have underutilized property, you're not making good use of your property. So you're not maximizing the value of that asset. I just wanted to point out a couple of things because it's not directly said, but it certainly is directly relevant.
2: Well, I really like your uh, connecting uh, asset management principles that are uh, intuitive or instinctive that over lay with each other. So the star to your framework to ISO 55,000 and all of these things can work together. Right. Right. And uh, you've done some very good study and research on this. And I don't know if you have any ideas on how to address some of these uh, risks. Are there ways to uh, make the data more stable? Or is that even your position?
1: Well, no, Well, we do have, Keith, uh, in, in the high-risk report, we do have what remains to be done, which is a section of the report. Um, so that's that's another question that we didn't really talk about. And I don't know if we have time to do that now, but that, sure. um, that is that is part of, for example, for facility security, Keith mentioned that one of the risks is the training of the guards. That's one area where they still need to do work. And that has to do with capacity, as I just mentioned, resources. In In terms of asset management, we would call it resources. In terms of the star, capacity. But what I tried to say is I, I think they're very much the same thing. So the area that they need to work on is, is making sure that their guards are fully trained and meeting the standards that are out there for security guard training. So mm-hmm. when they get them trained proper or up to the level, up to the standard that they should be, then they might be able to fill in that part of the capacity, so, and that has to do—that's resources. The staff are resources, um, mm-hmm. and we may have some work. You no, know, we have some outstanding recommendations on that. I'm not sure exactly what we'll have to do, but I know that I know that FPS is working on that. I'm not sure exactly the status of that, but that's just an example. Uh, I know that. Um, yeah, well, that's an example.
2: FPS. FPS.
1: Ah, federal protective service. Sorry. Those are the um, uh, Keith was mentioning contract guards that protect the federal yes. building.
2: No, Those are FPS. Okay. So and my
3: regard data, um, In order to get it squared away and actually to get it to a, point, a place where we could remove it from the list, like Lisa saying, uh GSA has done, gosh, almost everything it can do um, in terms of trying to get the the agencies to provide reliable data. And so the rest of it comes from leverage, getting leverage on the agencies. Uh, Department of Defense is the biggest um, culprit here. They have the most uh, assets of any agency and their data is also the worst. So um, finding ways to leverage them to provide, and honestly, like Amelia said, to value good data. The idea that DOD doesn't need good data on its assets to manage its assets, it's it's really a fallacy. The idea that we want them to do good data, it's nonsensical. Uh, Until they value the data and the reliability of the data, we're not gonna be able to remove this from the list. So anything we can do to increase that leverage on DOD and to get them to recognize the value of good data, Mm -hmm. that's what's really gonna make a difference.
2: Well, we do have some uh, uh, attendees, uh, including Mike Imani, uh and uh, kimono Onuma is one of our, our uh, patron companies. If they want to chime in on the chat on anything, because uh, Mike contributed that twenty percent of the DoD uh, real property was excess, so he has some familiarity with the way they're managing data. If there's any comments uh, that he would like to make. Uh, and I know Kimono Onuma is trying to help Department of State uh, with their data reliability, too. They can chime in with uh, comments. But uh, previously, there was a question about um, value from assets. And related to, uh, Keith, what you were saying about the difficulty of managing uh, real property and keeping it up, if the federal government starts doing better asset management, might it be able to have more value from owning more of its own properties?
3: Absolutely. Uh, it's a travesty. It's, it's work that, that we have ongoing right now looking at the condition of the government's own real property. Uh, leading practices say that you should reinvest 2% of the value of the property every single year. Well, the government doesn't even approach 1% of a reinvestment. Consequently, our our own assets um, age quicker, they uh, go out of service sooner. And at the end of the day, the lifespan of the building is is made shorter. So, and, and when you go to the FASTA process that Colleen talked about, you get less. So it's really just a loser. Think about your own house. Would you really let your house just run to failure uh, no, of course you wouldn't, because if you do that, you don't have a house anymore. Uh, but that tends to be the way the federal government responds to its owned assets. And you know, I don't want to just blame them. You know, they tell Congress that they need the money for repairs. Congress doesn't always give them the money they need for repairs, and so there's a little bit of a finger-pointing game going on right now. We think the federal government can still do a better job of explaining that why it matters. One of the things I don't think GSA makes enough news about is for every $1 of deferred maintenance, that's going to cost you 4 or $5 down the road of additional repairs once those systems fail. And so spending a little bit of money now to save a lot of money later, I think if even Congress can understand the value of that.
2: Okay, and we've got a couple of comments, uh, uh, Bill, and I don't know his last name, uh, but he's saying that uh, it's not always beneficial for lower level organizations to disclose its data to higher levels. That does, I mean, I understand that on an emotional level, but a legal level, I, I think, what, what comments do you have on that? being a parochial is uh,
3: as old as the government and trying to, uh, keep your stuff and your information contained. It's just, it's, it's always been the way kind of, I'm almost humans are, uh, we got to fight that asset management requires a much more strategic view of, of property and, and hiding your assets. A, A colleague knows that a lot of agencies are, are, Accused of hiding their valuable assets so that they aren't sold out from under them. Um, And that's ridiculous. Um, It it benefits them as a taxpayer if we get rid of those. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I agree. It's not, it's really not up to the agency whether they just close their data. It's the federal government. You know, it's taxpayers. The information belongs to the taxpayers, not to the agency. Yeah. I wanted
2: to. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Amelia.
1: I just want to respond quickly to one question. This will be very simple uh, from someone named Robert. Uh, Was DOD real property infrastructure removed from the high risk? The answer is yes. It's called support infrastructure management. Um, And yes, it was removed from the high risk list. That's not our area, but it was removed.
2: And then uh, Mike Imani did uh, uh, comment. He said, continue to focus Asset data to be part of the agency financial audit process. So that's something that ISO fifty five thousand encourages is the uh, breaking down of silos. And I think what he's recommending there is that the data to be part of the financial audit may help uh, with some of this uh, problems with data.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We have has- support that. Has the uh, GAO ever studied the DOD system to assess the data quality? We definitely have that. Um, so the way uh, GAO
3: has a couple silos, unfortunately, uh, part of it is the defense capabilities and management team. They handle defense because DOD is just so big and uh, Colleen, Amelia and I, we get the uh, the rest of the civilian agencies, uh, but we have studied that. And, uh, that could be a topic for uh, another ALN
2: presentation, possibly. Um, we'd be more than happy to uh, uh, talk about how that would be useful to uh, value to the nation. Um, and then uh, going back a little bit when uh, we were talking about the uh, FRPC, Jack Kelly asks, uh, why can't they resolve the data definition issue? He's worked you know, at OMB and he remembers that as being more of a matter of will than a technical issue.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. But um, imagine getting 50 different federal agencies and entities to, to march in lockstep. Uh, again, this is a, GSA tells them how they want the data and they didn't just make it up out of thin air. The Federal Real Property Council as a whole agreed to these definitions. So uh, they had a process, they came to an agreement and um, some of the agencies just don't choose to follow the agreement. I I can understand the problem. You've been doing something a certain way for, I don't know, decades, and your, your native database is set up to handle it in a certain way, and your people out in the field have always done it this way. Getting that kind of institutional change is hard, and you need a reason to really force people to change, and, and that's hard, and that's why we keep hammering on it.
2: We talk about Asset management, but I think uh, we also should have a subdivision of uh, human behavior management also.
1: <laughs> the leadership, well, this is another discussion, but one of our criteria is leadership and collaboration. So human behavior is related to collaboration. And mm-hmm. collaboration is definitely part of asset management because if you don't have collaboration, you're not going to be able to manage your assets very well.
2: Totally. Totally. Um, it is understood. So, Colleen, what did you think of uh your first ALN uh, webinar?
4: I thought this was great. Um, this was actually my first panel ever. Um, so I think oh. this was a yeah. Um, so no, I thought it was great, very well organized. It was really, it was really fun to share our work. Um And, you know, like you said, it seems like we've done a lot and we have done a lot. So fitting it all into, you know, an hour is always a challenge, but I'm glad that we were able to share some of our work.
2: This is just to get people interested and know that there's more information out there.
4: Yes,
3: I just want to say I thought it was I thought you did a great job, but I know you're going to regret it because you're going to spend most of 2021 teaching me how to do Prezi
2: because it was amazing. I'm doing it every time from here on and you're showing me how. Yeah, um, maybe you'll come back and give us uh, all a uh, (laughs) presentation. (laughs) Okay,
4: I'll do a tutorial.
2: (laughs) And then uh, Keith and Amelia, are there any uh, um, closing comments you'd like to make?
3: Uh, No, uh, anybody who's part of the federal property, anybody's familiar with the Federal Property Association Uh, Next month, as a matter of fact, one month from today, um, we're going to be having a high risk uh, panel featuring the comptroller general himself, we'll also be bringing in people from GSA and maybe even DOD to talk about some of the progress that they've made in getting off the real high risk list. Um, And, uh, you know, if you want any details on that it's free for anybody who wants to attend from government.
2: Uh, we'll definitely post that on our events page and uh, mention it in our newsletter. So, thank you. I appreciate that. And, Amelia, is there any closing comments you'd like to make? You are muted. Uh, thank you for having
1: us. It's been a pleasure. We're continuing to do more work on asset management. And, although we don't always name it that way, that's what all of our work is. So we look forward to talking with you further.
2: Excellent, so um, just want to once again, uh, thank uh, Andrew James Advisory Group for uh, making these uh, available in uh, video and uh, podcasts. Uh, Andrew James Advisory Groups provide uh, training that leads to A55K professional certification. So you might wanna check that out and see how you can learn more about ISO 55,000 approach. And then uh, next week, as part of our series, we have uh, the 2021 infrastructure report card from the American Society of Civil Engineers. And Anna Denneke, Carol Sevier, and uh, David Totman will be speaking, and we're looking forward to that. Um, And of course, all of our uh, uh, regular patrons and organizational members, we're very uh, thankful for their support, and we're thankful for uh, the active involvement in the GAO in using ALN as a, a vehicle and a platform for getting the information out to the public and uh, we're happy to be of assistance to you thank you very much and thank you to the audience for attending and sticking all the way through we had full uh, attendance through the uh, the hour so thank you everybody see you soon Mike thank you okay bye
1: Thank you all for listening to a great first session of the ALN Podcast Series 2021 National Issues. If you liked what you heard, you can find this and other live recordings, podcasts, videos, and more at assetleadership.net.
0: We hope you enjoyed our podcast, and we would like to thank the Andrew James Advisory Group for their sponsorship. For more information about AJAG and their services, please visit www.andrewjamesadvisory.com or email info at andrewjamesadvisory.com.